gospel. If you have your Bible, and I pray and hope and encourage that you do, Hebrews chapter 9 is where we'll be this morning. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1. We're going to look at 1 through 14. And as you make your way there, I want to say a couple of things. First off, um, I just want to tell you I'm so grateful for being here at Center Church. Uh, this this Monday, I had a group of ladies in here, and we were at lunchtime, and we were just praying out to God. I remember one of them left, and they were like, I cannot believe how quickly that ended. Like 30 minutes of prayer went by that fast, and we just we just prayed for this service. We prayed for our spacing issues, and I just want you to know, I, I don't believe they're the only ones that are praying. I believe all of you are praying that, uh, knowing kind of where we are right now and where God is taking us into the future. And so I'm grateful to be a part of a church that really values the power of prayer. Somebody can say amen right there. Prayer is powerful, and we go to our Father with anything that is on our hearts. And so I'm just grateful to be a part of a church like that. I just want you all to know that. Uh, I'm going to begin by giving you a scene from a, from a movie. And I want you to see, let's have, have a little game here. Let's see if you can pick the movie, uh, if you can get the title of the movie. Now, what I did is I picked a, a, a movie that's pretty generationally uh, wide. So I think every single person, no matter where you are in this room, generationally, you should be able to get this movie. And you probably get it pretty quickly. So here we go. There's the scene. There's an older gentleman. Uh, he has no children. He's got a cat, though. Um, sorry. Uh, he's got a cat. And uh, he's a toy maker. And so what he decides to do is he decides to make a toy. And he makes a little wooden puppet. And then he sees this star out there in the, uh, in the darkness. And he goes and he makes this wish upon this star. And while he's sleeping comfortably in his bed, uh, this blue fairy comes in and she puts this toy to life. Now, the problem with this toy is that he's not fully human. He's not a real boy. He's got no strings to hold him down. He's got no strings to make him fret or make him frown. But he's still not a real boy. And so he's got a problem because he doesn't know which way to go. And so the blue fairy finds this little cricket. Yes, a cricket. And she says, you're going to be this little wood puppet's conscience. And based off of how he lives, we'll determine if he becomes a real boy or not. Movie. Pinocchio. See, I got everybody here smiling. You all know Pinocchio. Whether you watch the Tom Hanks version or whether you watch the cartoon version like I did. We all know Pinocchio. And what's really interesting to me about Pinocchio is even though that Pinocchio has a really faulty theology when it comes to the human conscience, what really bothers me, though, is that Disney has actually thought more about the conscience than I think many of us have. Did you know that the Bible actually talks about the human conscience? 28 times, in fact, you find the word conscience within Scripture. And the sad reality is I I can't think of very many times that Christians have actually sat down and said, what does the Bible teach me? What does the Bible really say about my faculty, human faculty known as the conscience? In fact, this week as I was studying, I asked Katie, I said, Katie, can you ever remember a time that you heard a sermon on the conscience? She's like, "Mm, no. I said, the, the closest that I think I've ever heard on the human conscience was from 1 Corinthians, when J.D. Greer preached a sermon through 1 Corinthians, and he was in 1 Corinthians 8, and he talked about uh, Christian liberty from a conscious perspective. That was the closest that I've ever heard somebody preach on the conscience. So today, I'm going to remedy that for us. Today, we are going to have an opportunity to truly grasp a little bit a theology of the human conscience. And then what we're going to do, because when we start to see our conscience, I'm praying that this morning, our conscience are going to start getting a little convicted. Our, our conscience might start waking up. And when that happens, what I want to do is I want to show you the truth, the power, and the beauty of the gospel. In other words, I want to show you what Jesus can do for your conscience this morning. Sound good? So before we jump into the text, let me kind of give you a quick theology of the conscience from Scripture. Number one, 
we have to understand that the conscience in this in the Greek New Testament, when we see the word conscience uh, presented, this word conscience actually means to be a, uh, be aware of. Uh, that's the way that we could translate it, to be aware of something. Another, another word for the conscience, or another way we could talk about this, is a, a moral sensitivity. And so God, in His infinite wisdom and grace, He created us with a human conscience. There's this, there's this immaterial faculty within us that, that is aware of right and wrong, that has the ability to be morally sensitive to our lives. And we've all felt this, have we not? You know what I'm talking about when I start talking about the conscience. Have you ever thought about doing something wrong? You know that little feeling you got in you? Children, do you remember? Adults, do you remember? It's like yesterday when we all had that conscience stirring because we've all done something wrong, I'm sure. Maybe even this morning. But the reality is that there's something, there's a feeling inside of us that when we start to feel tempted and we start to feel like we're going to go down the wrong path and we start to feel like, well, even when we're doing wrong, have you ever done that when you're doing wrong and you're feeling this stirring within you? Well, that's your human conscience. That's your conscience being awakened and stirred when we begin to move down paths. It becomes aware of something. Now, you may not be able to explain what is right and what is wrong in that instance, but you have a feeling that something isn't right here, right? Everybody felt that? Anybody have no conscience? Just kidding. Everybody's hands should be up. We've all felt that conscience. So the question now we must ask is who has one? And the reality is when you all should have raised your hand, which you didn't because you're good church folks, and so uh, we all have a conscience. Every single one of us in this room has a conscience. We have this faculty within us that has this moral sensitivity to it. And we see this specifically in Paul's writings. When Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, he talks about the conscience of the Gentiles. Go ahead. Uh... All right, Romans chapter 2, look what he says here. He says, for when Gentiles, these are people who are not Jewish, who do not have the law... By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now, what, what Paul is talking about here, he says, now think back to the moral law of God. When I say moral law, I want you to think Ten Commandments. Uh, John Calvin said that the best summary of God's moral law is found within the Ten Commandments. So think about the, the Ten Commandments when we talk about God's moral law. And so the Gentiles don't have access to the moral law like the people of Israel did in the Old Testament. But yet, Paul says, when we look at their lives, we actually see that they do by nature what the law requires. That in some way, they are, they are living their lives and doing some kind of right and wrong. So how does that happen? Look at the next verse. Is that me? I think that is me. It is me. I am sorry about that. Kind of scares me a little bit. Thought it was lightning or thunder at first. All right, let's go back to Romans chapter 2, verse 15. It says this, They show, the Gentiles show, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. What is the word? Conscience. This moral sensitivity bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What he's saying here is that the Gentiles, inside of them, their conscience, this moral sensitivity, says, mm, some things aren't right. Some things ought not to be practiced. And so the reality that Paul shows us is that every single person in this room, every single person in this world has been given a moral conscience, a conscience that lives within them. Think about this in terms of 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, you're right, I'm right. 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, we, we can see the conscience of the people even in society. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. 
And if you don't know much about the history of the church in Corinth, the, the history of the church in Corinth is very interesting. But one of the things Corinth was known for is a very loose, sexually moral culture. In other words, sexual immorality was not only rampant within that culture, but it was also embraced. But to an extent. And so when Paul begins to correct the Corinthian church, he says, there is a sexual immorality amongst you congregation, amongst you church, that not even the pagans in Corinth would accept. One of you has his father's wife. Now, the way that the Greek plays out doesn't mean that it's his actual biological mother. It's probably his stepmother. But either way, that's gross. And the reality is, he says, that that's not even acceptable in this culture. Where does that unacceptance come from? Well, I think Paul is also highlighting in this text, in the First Corinthians text, highlighting this conscience within us. That there is a conscience, that there is a law written on our heart, and our conscience bears witness. So we have conflicting thoughts or excuses them. So every single person in here has a conscience. So the question is then, well then how is Pinocchio wrong? Remember the song... Always let your conscience be your guide. If you don't know which path to take, give a little whistle. And if you really don't know, if you're struggling, yell, Help, Jiminy Cricket! And always let your conscience be your... So why is that a problem? Well, the problem is, very simply, we have a sin problem. The conscience in Pinocchio has a false assumption. The false assumption is that our conscience is naturally good. But in all reality, what we forget as Christians is that sin has infected us holistically. Sin has messed up our minds. Sin has messed up our bodies. Sin has messed up our hearts. And sin has even messed up our what? Our conscience. As as Augustine would say in one of his later works, Augustine, uh, the early church father, he would say that our consciences don't don't point towards true north. So think of a conscience like a compass. It doesn't point to true north. Because of our sin, our conscience is naturally off. So while we know some things are right or wrong, we can't maybe explain whether they're right or wrong, but we're going to see here in a moment that we can actually ignore our conscience. And then actually we can train our conscience to do bad. So let me show you what I mean. Look at Paul talks about the conscience in uh, Titus. Titus 1.15, he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. What? But both their minds and their what? Consciences are defiled. You see, when we're born with our sinful nature, our conscience is defiled. Our minds are defiled. They don't point towards true north. And so Paul would actually say in 1 Timothy, check this out. He would talk about the conscience has the ability to be seared. He said, through the insecurity of liars whose consciences are what? Seared. This word seared means that your conscience, because of your sinfulness, your conscience can be ignored. Not heeding what your conscience is saying. And I think at that point, I think theologically, I'm kind of with the medieval patristics on this, that uh, what happens is we can actually train our conscience towards evil, not towards good. So the reality is that even though within us, and you've all experienced this, right? Like you're about to do bad and you know you shouldn't do bad, but you do what? You do it anyway. That is what Paul is talking about. That is the searing of your conscience. That is why your conscience is still defiled. Because you'd be like, yeah, that might feel bad. That might feel not right. But guess what? I don't care. That's the way sin works, right? Sin's like, I don't care. I'm just going to do what I want to do and live how I want to live. I'm not going to have any regard for anything or even myself. That is how deeply we have been infected by our sin. And the reality is we see this in our culture today, don't we? 
Don't you see the consciousness of people being seared and defiled? If you look around our culture right now in America, we understand that people are living how they want to live. And they're trying to make everybody else embrace their lifestyle. We see the acceptability of the sin of homosexuality taking place. We see the acceptability of this gender confusion. We see the problem of sin, of slander, lying and gossip. And they're just looked at as like, "Mm, that's okay. This is what Isaiah would say. He says, don't don't misconstrue. Don't call evil good and good evil. But yet because of our sinfulness, we have a real problem as human beings in that we can sear and our consciences are defiled and we can sear them by saying, even though you're telling me that this doesn't seem right or feel right, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. But here's what I need to tell every single person in this room, because it is really easy to put ourselves on our church pedestal, is it not? We can oh man, we can get all kinds of arms and judgments. We can point fingers at the culture. We can get mad at them. A bunch of lost people. And yes, they are lost people, but let's not forget something. You were once lost too. So was I. Let's not forget that we once lived in that culture as well. Some of us in this room, and I'm pointing specifically at myself, actually embraced some of that culture. And why did we do that? Because at one point, our consciences were defiled. And at one point, our consciences had been seared. So let's not look too high and mightily on the culture. Because what we need to do is instead of being in combat with the culture, instead what we need to do is we need to go to them with Jesus. And that's the whole point of Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. The whole point of Hebrews 9 through 1, 14 is to to show us how your conscience can be clean. Your conscience can be cleared this morning. And guess what? It is a clearing not that you have done. It is a clearing that our high priest has done for you. Isn't that amazing? So how many of you want a clear conscience today? You don't have to raise your hand. I think we all do, don't we? When we do wrong and we feel that guilt and that shame and the weight of our sin, we ask, what can be done with it? And the writer of Hebrews says, I'm going to point you to the one who can take care of your conscience this morning. It's our great high priest and his name is Jesus. So first thing we need to do is we need to actually understand how our conscience can be awakened. Some of us, we have to get our conscience kind of awoken again. And the first thing that our author does for us in verses 1 through 5 is he shows us the holiness of God. So here's the first point of my sermon. The holiness of God convicts our conscience. The holiness of God convicts our conscience. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 together. The author says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. In an earthly place of holiness. He's talking about the, the tent. He's talking about the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament. And he's talking about this in the first covenant, specifically what we look at in the Old Testament. And in, throughout the Old Testament, we see these regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. Verse 2, for a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. So here's what we got. In the tabernacle and in the temple, when you would walk into the tabernacle, you would have the first place called the holy place. And as you can see here, inside the holy place was the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. And this is where the Levitical priests would do their work day in and day out. This is where they would spend their time working for the people in the Levitical system was in this first place. But then notice there's actually a second place within the temple and the tent. Look what he says. 
Now, behind the second curtain was a second section. So, pretend you're an Israelite, and you're walking into the temple. You walk into the first place. You see the lamp. You see the bread of presence. And then you see a curtain. And behind that curtain, we see what? That it is a second section called the most holy place. And this most holy place, the way that we understand this, is this symbolized God's presence. So God's presence was amongst his people, but his presence was also veiled from his people. That there was a curtain in between his holiness and where his people worshipped. And there's a reason for that that we're going to see here in just a moment. But let's continue to look what was in the second place. Verse 4, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna. So if you read through Exodus, this is what God fed the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. is manna from heaven. It was kind of like a dew, right? And they would go out and they would pick it up and they would eat it throughout the day. But guess what happened on the second day to the manna? It, it got rotten. If you didn't throw it away, it got rotten. The only day that it wouldn't get rotten is what day? The Sabbath. Listen to you. you guys are, y'all could preach this sermon. Come on. And Aaron's staff that budded. And then there was the tablets of the covenant. The tablets of the covenant is our Ten Commandments. The two tablets of stone were the Ten Commandments that were written on. And they were placed into this covenant or into this ark. And the reality is that the Ten Commandments serve as a character of who God is. So the reason why God says you shall not murder is he says, because my character, I am the God of life. You don't take life because that's not who I am. And so these character traits are him. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, we actually see the character of God. When we look at the Ten Commandments, we actually see the holiness of God, his perfection. And it says above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. We cannot now speak in detail. So what is the author trying to show us today? He's talking about our conscience. What is he trying to show us? He's trying to show us God's holiness. God's holiness convicts our conscience. When you and I look and study the holiness of God, his perfection, when we look and see that he has no sin, no sin is ever found in him. Every sin is despicable to him. And when we look at him and we look at us, we go, what? I'm not that good. He's perfect. I am very not perfect. And my conscience begins to stir because what that means is when I look upon his holiness, then I understand that I deserve his wrath. No matter how much we want to hide from it, no matter if you want to be an atheist, no matter if you want to be a practical utilitarian, no matter if you want to pretend that God's not there, it doesn't matter because when you really truly reflect on who God is and who he says he is in scripture, your conscience begins to stir and you go, hmm, I'm a bad person. Contrary to our culture where it says what? I'm a relatively good person. No, scripture is very clear that we are bad people. Paul actually talks very harshly about fallen human condition. He says we're by nature children of wrath. That doesn't sound very good, does it? How many of you are like, oh, let's go sing a, let's go sing a love song about my children. We're children of nature of wrath. Yeah. I'm a disgusting person. Yeah. Like nobody sings that about themselves. At least you shouldn't. If you do. Kyle's our counselor. You should go talk to him about that. The point is, is that we look at his holiness and we see our depravity. Think of it like this. Maybe a, an illustration to help you think of it. Let's, let's pretend that you're the best basketball player in Brenham. Okay? It's basketball season. I'm coaching basketball. One of our members, partners told us, like, you're very passionate about basketball. And I really appreciated that. 
Because that's not typically what I'm told about my game in basketball. I'm not, I'm very competitive. Sometimes almost sinfully, my conscience stirs, okay? It's my confession to you. <laughs> Let's pretend you're the best basketball player in Brenham. And you walk into the gym, you're, you're over there at the rock gym and you're playing ball and you're like, man, I'm really good. You know, that confidence gets built up, that pride starts to get scratched a little bit. But then in walks a guy by the name of LeBron James. And he walks into the rock gym. I don't know why he's in Brenham to walk into the rock gym, but he does. He walks into the rock gym and you go, wow, he's, he's, he's a lot taller than me. He's a lot bigger than me. And then he starts to warm up and you're like, he can jump a lot higher than I can. He's a lot faster than me. He can shoot a lot better than me. What do you start to begin to realize about yourself? You're actually not that good. When you actually compare yourself to somebody who is great, I would not say the greatest of all time, but we can have that debate in the lobby. When you look at yourself compared to somebody who is great, you actually go, what? I'm actually not that good. And when we look at God's holiness, he is exponentially and infinitely better than any LeBron James and his holiness and his moral perfection. And when we look at him, we go, I'm not that good. In fact, because of my sinfulness, my conscience bears witness that I don't even deserve to go into that holy place. That 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 curtain, that curtain that's dividing us deserves to be there because I don't deserve to go in there. If you read throughout scripture, every time that somebody meets God's holiness, do you know what they always do? They fall down as if dead. John, when he meets the, he meets the resurrect, uh, on the line of Patmos, when he meets the resurrected Jesus, he sees Jesus and he's like, poof, ground. I'm dead. Falls to the ground. He even says in the text, falls to the ground as if he were dead. That's how you feel. That's what your conscience fully awakens to when you see the holiness and the beauty and the goodness of God. So what do we do about it? Well, number six, uh, verses 6 through 10 shows us the inability of the Levitical priesthood to clear our conscience. The inability of the Levitical priesthood to clear our conscience. Look what it says in verse 6. He says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. So that's the, the holy place or the lamp. And the, and the table and the bread of presence are. And they perform their ritual duties there. But into the second, only the high priest can go. And he can only go once a year. And not without taking blood, the author says. So what is, what is the author showing us here? So there's one person in Levitical priesthood, who is the high priest, who's actually allowed to go into the most holy place. But he can't just go in there. He can't just walk in and be like, hey, God, I'm here. Because that would probably be like dead, right? You're walking into holiness, you're down. And so what the, holy, the high priest would have to do only once a year is he would have to go get a sacrifice. He would have to make a blood sacrifice for himself. And he'd have to go in and he'd have to sprinkle the blood for himself, purifying himself, so that he can come back out, get another sacrifice, and go back in to purify the people. But he can only do this once a year. Think about that job. I mean, if you want a high priest job, I always think about it myself. Like, what happens if I mess up on the sacrifice? Like, my sacrifice. As if I didn't sprinkle the blood right, man. Like, God's holiness is convicting me of my own consciousness. And I'm like, you better make sure that your, your pastoral game is on point when you walk back there. Because you might not come back. I had, a, I had a, a pastor one time. He taught a lesson on this. And he said, uh, he said I think that, he, I don't know where he got it, but I think it makes sense. 
Uh, he said that they used to tie a rope to the high priest so that if he did go back there and die, they could at least get his body out. I'm like, I don't know if that's totally true, but it makes sense, right? Because who's going to be the guy who's like, hey, who's going to go get him? Not me. I'm not going back there, right? And so that was the way they could, they could get him out. But the only way he could go back there was first he had to offer blood for himself, and then he had to go back in and offer the, for his people the unintentional sins of the people, it says at the end of verse 7. And then look what verse 8 says. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. He's talking about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant here, which is symbolic for the present age. He's talking about this again in the Old Testament. He said the Old Testament was good, but it wasn't as great as it could be. That yes, God gave it, but God gave it was the reason. It was the reason was to show us the inability for us to get back there on our own. We needed something different. And so look what he says here in verse nine, uh, at the end of verse 9. He said, according to this arrangement, arrangements, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot be perfect. The con- that cannot perfect, excuse me, the conscience of the worshiper. That that old system was unable to completely perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, as long as that system was around, they still knew that they needed more help. They knew that they needed more help and they knew that they needed more hope. It's like, we can't go back there. We can't go back there. We can't go back there. And then he says this at verse 10, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This word reformation is one of my favorite words in the world because I'm a reformer myself. All right. I love the reformation. And so this idea is that there was a new time coming. The Old Testament was there to get ready to point us to the new time that was about to come. And this is what Pastor Kyle preached last week. Do you remember what he said in verse 5 of chapter 8? He said that these things, they served as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. That the Old Testament Levitical priesthood was designed to point us to the high priestly office of King Jesus. That yes, it couldn't completely perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but one day God was going to send his son who was going to become our high priest and he could perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Thank you. So let me just kind of piggyback off of what Pastor Kyle preached last week. To help you understand this. Let's say, for example, that all you've had to eat for the last 39 years of your life was a McChicken sandwich from Mickey D's. Not a bad thing. Some of you might be like, "Mm, not a bad thing. Let's just say that that's all you could eat. Mickey D's chicken sandwich. And you ate it for 39 years. But then all of a sudden, you got told some good news. You got told that Chick-fil-A was coming to town. And that Chick-fil-A might have a better sandwich than the McChicken. And you're like, hmm, that's very interesting. And then you might be like me who drives by Chick-fil-A where they're kind of building it. Just to kind of, I called Katie this week as I was driving by. And I'm like, hey, look, they're out there. Katie, you'll never guess. They're actually flattening the land. Uh, I see some of the, like, I'm really excited about the new Chick-fil-A coming. All right. By God's grace. Amen. Yes. And all I keep thinking is like, man, all I've had is this McChicken sandwich, McChicken sandwich, McChicken sandwich. Then one day Chick-fil-A shows up and I eat that Chick-fil-A sandwich and I'm like, oh, my goodness, my hunger has been truly satisfied. I have been truly fulfilled in this very moment by tasting the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. Now, I know that's funny. It's designed to be funny for your enjoyment and so that you'll keep listening to my sermon. 
But if you think about it, that's exactly what the Old Testament priesthood was like. The Old Testament priesthood was like a McChicken. And they kept getting told over and over that there was going to be this new, there was going to be this son, there was going to be this this man born of a virgin, that there was going to be God in the flesh, and he was going to come, and he was going to come, and he was going to come. And they kept looking, they kept doing the McChicken, but they kept waiting for the Chick-fil-A. And then one day, Jesus shows up on the scene. And one day, Jesus comes and says, don't worry, I'm going to be the different kind of high priest. I'm going to be a high priest that you've never seen before. I'm going to be a high priest that's going to actually change the understanding of this tent and this tabernacle that you've been looking at in the Old Testament for all these years. So while it was good, it wasn't great. It still had the inability to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So now you ask the question, okay, so what's next? Well, the time of the Reformation has already come. Look at verse 11 through 14. But... When Christ appeared. Oh man, that's a great stuff. It's like I could just I could preach to you for like six hours on that one sentence, but I won't. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of Goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus says, I'm going to be your high priest. But guess what? When I go back to that most holy place for you, I don't have to sacrifice anything for me. Because I am perfect, he says. When we read the scripture, Jesus had zero sin. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Could you imagine being one of the brothers of Jesus? Mary's getting on to you for not doing something. And she's like, why don't you be more like your brother Jesus? Uh, Because I'm not the son of God. How about that for starters? Why can't you be more perfect like him? Because I can't be him. He actually had to come for me too. And so Jesus, with no sin, he walked back to that most holy places. And But instead of offering a sacrifice for us, he offered himself for us. That our high priest went back there and offered himself as our blood sacrifice. Why? So that through him, he could secure an eternal redemption for you and me. That's how we're saved. We're saved through the blood of Jesus, not through the blood of goats. And this is so beautiful to think about because when Jesus talks about this, when he comes in, if you recall in Matthew's gospel, the moment that that he dies on the cross, what happens to that veil that divided the most holy places and the holy place? It was torn in two, baby. You know why that's important? Because Jesus' sacrifice is actually saying, I can bring you into God's presence completely. I can bring you into the presence of God fully now. His presence is wide open for you because of what Jesus has done for us in that he secured an eternal redemption for us. Look at verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your, our conscience. Do you see it? That's what Jesus did. 
When we look at God's holiness, yes, we feel the weight of our sin. Some of you, you almost didn't come to church today because you felt the weight of your sin this morning. Your conscience was maybe stirred up. You felt guilt. You felt shame. You're like, you know what? I don't even know if I need to go to church. Because I feel what I've done last night. I feel what I did this week. I know that I've done wrong and I messed up. And I deserve God's wrath. And I believe that God brought you here today. So not only would you feel the conviction of it, but you would meet the Christ who can save you from it. And so when we put our trust in Jesus, when we put our trust in him, he cleans our conscience. The word here is he purifies our conscience. That word purify, it means to heal. It means to make ritually clean. That what happens is when you put your trust in the work of Jesus, your conscience no longer says I'm under his wrath. Instead, your conscience says I am at peace with God because of what Christ has done for me. That's how you get a clean conscience this morning. I know some of you in here, you're struggling. You're wrestling right now with with your sinfulness, with your past. But I want you to know that Jesus came to be our high priest in order to clear our conscience. In order to heal our conscience. In order to make us, in order to make us purify, to make us ritually pure in our conscience. Today, your conscience can be cleaned in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean your conscience doesn't stop working. That conscience only says, I have now peace with God. Now the conscience actually goes, goes into overtime. Now the conscience begins to get transformed under the word of God for the glory of God. So your conscience begins to change to understand what is truly right and what is truly wrong based off of who God is. But the reality is, your conscience is now at peace with God because of what Christ has done for you. And now you can walk fully in his presence. Listen, some of you in this room, you need to hear that this morning. I remember a book uh, John Bunyan wrote called Pilgrim's Progress. If you ever had a chance to read it, it's really interesting. You know what I love about John Bunyan? They said John Bunyan, if you cut his, if you cut his arm, that he would bleed scripture. Like the man just knew so much scripture. I'm like, man, Lord, if they would say that about me when I die, I'm a happy man. And in this book, he talks about Christian. And Christian is carrying this pack. Like some of you are in, had walked in here with this pack. He's carrying his guilt. He's carrying his shame. He's carrying the weight of his sinfulness and his conscience bears witness. I am bad. I am wrong. I deserve God's wrath. And he's trying to figure out what to do with this pack on his back. Finally, he's led up this hill. And when he comes up to the hill, he sees a cross. And he's been told like this cross symbolizes what Jesus has done for your sin. What Jesus has done for that weight that's bearing you down and crushing you. And what he says is, he says, and John Bunyan talks about how Christian finally sees Jesus as his high priest. And he takes off his pack and he sets it at the foot of the cross. And he's like, I'm good now. Whoo, that weight just fell off. Put it, let me put it to you this way. One of our children in here, uh, they have a very weak conscience like their daddy. All right, weak conscience. I have a weak conscience myself. I know what he. I know what he feels when he when he when he gets going. So when he does something wrong, it eats at him. Anybody? You don't have to raise your hand, but you know if you have that, like if you're like when you do something wrong, like that conscience is just ugh, like you can't stop thinking about it. it. Just makes your stomach hurt. That's me. And so I can tell when his conscience is stirred, because he'll come to me or his mom, and he'll be like. Hey, God, God, I just got to tell you something. I'm like, yeah, tell me, son. He's like, well, you know, I have this friend. And, and he, uh, you know, my friend, I'm speaking on behalf of my friend. Just want to make sure you realize that, Dad. Yeah, got you. Go ahead. 
I was like, I know. I already know where you're going with this. And he's like, so my friend kind of did this recently. What do you think about that? So I began to say, I began to ask probing questions at this point. Well, tell me more about your friend. What caused him to do that or respond this way? And then finally at the end, I'm like, excuse me, buddy. Are you this friend? Yes. Just confess it. And he'll confess it. He'll just like, he'll just like let it all out, right? And, and as he lets it all out, I see something happen and changing and transforming in him. You know what he has? He has a sense of peace. You ever heard that saying, get that weight off your chest? When he confesses it to his daddy, he's like, oh, my conscience is back at peace. You see, Jesus doesn't just do that for one of your sins. Jesus does that for all of your sin. When you confess your sin to him and you trust in his work, you will find a peace that surpasses all understanding. And your conscience will be at rest with God. So listen, if that's you this morning, if you walked in here and you're like, man, my, Jeremy, I'm carrying some serious weight and my conscience is stirring right now. then here's what I want you to do in just a moment. I want you to text me. Here's my number. You just text your name and you say ready. Say, Jeremy, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. Just say your name and say ready. And one of our pastors will reach out to you and we'll, we'll continue to talk with you about how God can clear your conscience through Jesus. And we'll begin to disciple you and point you to what Jesus wants you to do next. So that way you don't have to worry about coming forward and getting all weird. If you're like, Jeremy, I'm just ready now. I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. Text me. Text me your name and say, I'm ready. But secondly, there's another group of people in this room. There's some of you in here like, I've already believed in Jesus. I've already trusted Jesus. But here's what happens to your conscience. Your conscience gets stirred because you keep going back to your past. Your conscience keeps getting stirred because the enemy reminds you and convicts you and wants to tell you you're not good enough. And so some of you, what you want to do is you actually want to walk back to that cross and pick that sin back up. But I'm here to tell you today, when you set it down at the foot of Jesus, it never comes back. He washes you as white as snow. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. And so you don't have to feel the guilt and the shame and the weight of your conscience now or in the past because it has been taken care of on the cross. It's been taken care of on the cross. So quit going back and picking it up. Jesus says, I got you. I got you. Now and for all eternity. How long did it say that his blood would work? Securing an eternal redemption. Jesus' salvation that he offers to you through his sacrifice lasts forever. Forever. Quit going back and getting it. Live in the identity and the comfort of Christ from now on out. Some of you, you just keep wanting to go back and pick it up. Some of you, you're sitting in here and you're like, ah, if people found out or if people get on to me, they, like this stirring happens within you. What are they going to think? What are they going to say? Who cares? How about you ask the question, what does Jesus already declare about me? Then you don't have to worry about anybody else what they think. Because my conscience is cleared with Christ. My conscience is purified with Christ. So if that's you this morning, if you're sitting here like, Jeremy, I keep going to go back to that pack. And here's what I want you to do. I just want you to text me your name, same phone number, and you just text the word pray. Just text your name and say pray. And I'm going to put you legitimately every morning from this week forward till next Sunday, if not longer, I'm going to put your name right there in my morning quiet time when I get up at 5 a.m. I'm going to put my, your name right there and I'm going to pray for you not to go back and pick that pack up. I'm going to pray for you to trust in our high priest, to trust in his eternal work on your behalf and to trust in him in such a way that you know without a shadow of a doubt that your conscience is clean with Christ. 
So text me that. And I will pray for you this week specifically by name for that. Lastly, lastly, look what he says at the very end of verse 14. Jesus purifies our conscience from dead works to do what? To serve the living God. Those of us with clear consciences, we live for Christ. Those of us with clear consciences, we begin to ask ourselves, God, how can I best glorify you by the way I live for you? You've cleared me. You've changed me. You've saved me. Now let me live for you. Let me serve you with my clear conscience. And I think there is many applications. I could spend here all morning talking to you about the many applications of a clear conscience, but I only want to focus on one. And that is this. We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that there are people in our neighborhoods. There are people next door to us. There are people in our classrooms, in our schools that are walking around with the weight of their guilt, of their conscience, and the shame of their sin. And they're asking the question, what do I do with this? How do I clear myself from this this guilty conscience? And the reality is what they need is they need a bunch of Christians who boldly in the power of the Spirit go to them, grab their hand, walk them with their pack, and point them to the high priest and say, this is how you drop that pack. This is how you drop that pack. It's through what Jesus has done for you. You want your conscience cleared? You go to Jesus with it. I think that is one of the ways that we serve the living God. We serve the living God by living out the Great Commission. This week in our elder candidate meeting, I love that we've got an elder candidate uh, team being built right now. Something that Kyle's prayed for for like seven years since we planted the church. And it's now God's starting to give it to us. And so as I was leading in that elder, elder meeting, I said, guys, what I want to talk about is I'm really excited about what God is doing. We're talking theology and character and the church and all these good things. I said, but I never want us to lose focus on what God has actually called us to do. What he's called us to do is not simply to oversee and run Center Church. He's called us to make disciples who go and make disciples. And so we sat there as a group of elder candidates and we prayed for a, an unreached people group, the Chu people of Vietnam. The Chu people of Vietnam, 7,600 of them live in Vietnam right now. Guess how many Christians they know? Zero. Zero percent Christians amongst that people group. Think about that for a moment. Those people have never heard the good news of Jesus and they are carrying their guilt and their sin and their shame and they have no one to come tell them how they can get rid of it. And God says, that's why I created you, (laughs) church. You go to them with this message. So those of us with clear conscience, we need to go to those who have burdened conscience and we need to show them how they too can have clear consciences through Jesus. So maybe that's some of you today. I'm going to ask you right now in this moment to pray Ask God right now. God, bring somebody into my life who is carrying the weight of their sin so that I can point them to you as their high priest because that's what you have done for me as my high priest. So everybody bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're ready today to give your life to Jesus, text me your name and say ready. If today you're sitting here and you're saying, my conscience is, keeps wanting to go back. I'm a believer, but it keeps, it keeps wanting to get stirred back up by the accusations of the enemy. Then you text me right now and you text me your name and you say, pray. And I'll pray for you. But lastly, if you're in here and like not, neither one of those apply to you and you're a Christian, then ask the Lord, Lord, how can I serve you better because of what you have done for me as my high priest? I'm going to give you about a minute to do that right now.
Father God, I pray for these people in this room today. Lord, I pray that they know that eternal redemption is found only in Jesus, our high priest. That Jesus has split that veil wide open and brought us completely into your presence. We no longer fear wrath. Our conscience is at peace because we know that Jesus has given that to us through his sacrifice. But Lord, there are so many people in Brenham. There are so many people in Texas. There are so many people in the USA. There are so many people in this world who are still carrying around that bag just like Christian did. And you've called us as your church, those of us with clear conscience, to go to them with the only one who can save them from themselves. So Lord, give us the power and the boldness to do just that. And Lord, if there's anyone in here today who doesn't know you, if there's anyone in here today who doesn't have a clear conscience, Lord, I pray that they would text me and that they would have an opportunity. We could talk with them about how Jesus truly can satisfy, fulfill them, save them, and then use them for the advancement of his kingdom. But Lord, there's some of us in here that keep wanting to run back to our packs. And God, I pray that we would just find complete and total trust and confidence in Jesus as our high priest. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.